a few years ago, actually several years ago this happened, uh, I was, as a, as a young Christian, I was uh, uh, traveling in a car uh, with another friend of mine who was also a Christian. And so uh, as we were driving, my friend was driving, and as, as uh, we were driving, the, 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 uh, the gas in the car was running dangerously low. And so we were in this place where we had to get to a gas station immediately, otherwise the car would stall. And so we, uh, um, but luckily we were in a, in a signal light where, where there's a gas station close by. But the problem was that the main public access, main entrance to the gas station was all the way on the other side of the, of the lane. And so in order to enter into the gas station, we had to drive about a quarter mile and loop around. But then there was a, there was a, there was a lane, there was a road right next to where we, where we were, which is actually a one-way lane to a parking lot next to the gas station. You could actually access the gas station through this one-way lane. And so uh, there were warning signs everywhere prohibiting vehicles from entering this one-way lane. But my friend decided that he was going to uh, break the law and uh, use that lane anyway. And so, uh, so he, when the signals turned green, he uh, pushed the gas pedal and he entered this one-way lane. And the worst part in the story is that as he started to go across traffic on this one-way lane, he, I could hear him mumble to himself, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. You know, by the grace of God, since then, uh, my friend and me have grown in our affections for Jesus, and uh, he's grown to be uh, a responsible Christ follower, you know, a husband, and serves at a, at a local church. And uh, uh, I, I bring this up today because for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Philippians, and the book of Philippians is a, is a, is a treasure chest that is full of beautiful pastoral encouraging verses. And these verses, are, these verses are not merely meant to find its way as wall art in our house or, or at worst be interpreted according to our convenience. The entire book of Philippians come together to call the church to a simple and pure devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ that has clear implications on how we live our lives here on this earth as citizens of the kingdom of God. We see Paul, we see Paul talking about the the, uh, we, we, in the entire, entire book of Philippians, we see Paul exhorting the church. Paul starts by, in the first chapter, he tells us that to live, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we see that he lives a life that exemplifies this truth. And we see by the, second, by the second chapter, we see that Paul reminds us of the incredible humility of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and calls us to embody this humility as we relate to people in the body of Christ. By the time we come to the third chapter, we see Paul telling us about the righteousness, which is only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so here in the fourth chapter, Paul gives us some specific instructions on what it means to live in this world as Christ followers. So with these things in mind, if you, could, if you have your Bible, would you grab it and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, as we read it together. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So at the start of this chapter, Paul addresses this young church, young Philippian church, as his joy and his crown. I don't think it's not just a ornate language. It's not just allegorical. He's actually pointing to something beautiful and something spiritual that is happening in the life of this congregation. This is not a perfect set of people. But in spite of, in spite of the imperfections there, Paul sees this community of believers, community of Christ followers, in the, in the light of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul has full assurance that there is soon coming a day when he would be gathered before the throne of Jesus and this community of people would be gathered with him. He's fully confident that whatever work Jesus has started in this community, he will bring into completion until the day of Christ. And so in that light, Paul calls them his joy and crown. And so as people who have received grace, as people among whom Jesus is at work, Paul calls them to stand firm. And he gives, he, in this passage that we just, he just, just read, he addresses three areas where he's calling them to stand firm. He calls them to stand firm in harmony, stand firm in peace, and stand firm in contentment. What does he mean by standing firm in harmony? Look at verse 2. I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul illustrates his first exhortation to stand firm in harmony by calling out two women leaders in the church, in the Philippian church. And these were prominent leaders who actually labored alongside Paul in the gospel. And Paul calls them to reconcile. Paul calls them to come into agreement. Now, every time I read this passage, I think about these women. I don't know them, but I think about them. And think about this. If you, if you were mentioned in the Bible, if your name was in the Bible, the most widely read book ever, generations have read it. I would want to be known for something really nice, really good, really honorable. But here are these two women who are known for their disagreement. Like in all generations, they'll be known for their disagreements. I hope there's like a good counseling in, in, in heaven, you know, where we can ask her, how did you really, how did that really make you feel? You know, so, but it's uh, in, in, in cultural context, you know, Paul is not actually shaming them. Paul is not outing them. What Paul is doing is Paul is honoring them and Paul is loving them and showing his concern by calling them and addressing them by name. 
Paul calls both of these women to consider who they are in Christ. Paul is reminding them that in their relationship, there's a third person involved. Paul is reminding them that Jesus Christ stands between Judea and Syntyche and holds them together in harmony. Paul calls them, in, in one of the translations it says that Paul appeals them to have the same mind as that of Jesus Christ. Paul, is, Paul does not want the Philippian church to just have an intellectual assent to the gospel. He wants their hearts to be moved by the gospel so that we will actually do what Jesus Christ is leading us to do. And so we see here that Paul, Paul calls both these women to reconciliation. And I love the fact that he addresses them by name and also reminds them that their names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. What Paul is doing here is Paul is reminding these women of the divine grace that has written their names in the electing heart of God even before the foundations of the earth were laid. And Paul is reminding them that the, the infinite grace of God is sufficient to, to overshadow any offense that they hold against each other. You know, this week, earlier this week, I, I had the joy of, uh, of actually uh, enjoying, uh, sorry, experiencing reconciliation in a relationship that has been strained for over a year and a half. And, uh, and I have to say that it's, uh, it's at the same time the most beautiful and the most awkward and hard experience. I, I, I mean, when we started, all parties sat down together and the tension was palpable. It was hard. I, I had to face some, some reality that, that I did not, my heart did not really want to face. And, and it was hard and there was tension and it was uh, awkward and it was difficult. But the beautiful thing was that when we stopped seeing ourselves as the offended or the offender, and when we start stepping into who we are in Christ, when we start stepping into, uh, into embracing each other with humility and engaging each other with humility as members of the family of God, the Holy Spirit started doing a beautiful work in that moment. Walls started to come down. Tears started to come down. And we, we talked and we embraced each other and we prayed for each other and we rejoiced in the grace of God. Jesus Christ calls us not just to enjoy a reconciliation, but to walk in the reality of reconciliation. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful. In one sense, I'm really grateful that the Holy Spirit has led Paul to write, to call these two women by name. Because I don't know about you, for me, when I read this passage, it is so helpful and freeing to know that, that, that the early church that has been named in the Bible, that has been planted by the Apostle Paul, is still an imperfect community. They still have, they still have uh, you know, disagreements and they still have conflict in this community. I say this because I think that sometimes we have this romanticized view of what Christian community looks like. And, and this romanticized view causes, causes us to have this, this uh, uh, you know, idealistic vision of a community where there is no disagreement and everything is perfect. And then community, the, the idea of community becomes like this, this elusive unicorn that we are trying to chase. And many people, sadly so to speak, have restrained themselves or refrained themselves and have not given themselves to community because they don't want to step into the messiness and brokenness of real gospel community. And in doing so, they have, they have shortchanged themselves of the comfort and the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ that can sometimes only be learned in the 
context of gospel community. The wish dream of community that we chase sometimes stands in the way of real community. The, the uh, renowned theologian and uh, pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this, and he says, and I quote, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself becomes destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. Wherever real community prevails, it'll come with conflict, it'll come with messiness, and it'll come with baggage. And in the midst of that messiness, in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of that brokenness, we learn to give grace. We learn to receive grace. We learn to offer forgiveness. We learn to receive forgiveness. We learn to carry each other's burdens. We learn to be patient with each other. We learn what it means to humbly engage each other, even in difficult conversation. This is, this is the community that Jesus Christ is calling us to. This is a community where we get, to, we get to grow in our confidence of our new identity as members in the family of God. This is where Jesus says, this is where we, we experience the idea that we are no longer the offender and the offender, but we are called children. We are called sons and daughters because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now I want to pause here and I want to say this. Some of us in this room right here, some of us in this room right here have been, have been keeping a list of offenses. You've been holding on to this list of offenses, ever-growing list of offenses that you've been harboring. And, this, and you've allowed this list of offenses to define who you are, to name you. And in, the, in, that, in that process, you've been holding on to this list of offenses. And, and, and Jesus Christ this morning wants you to lay down that list for the sake of his name. He wants you to know that retribution is not your justifier. Jesus Christ, the one who lived and died and rose again, is your justifier. He calls you to lay down that list for the sake of his name. He wants us to know that, this morning he wants us to know that Christ did not just die for the offenses that you have committed against God, but Christ has taken the list of offenses that we often hold on to and has nailed it to the cross of Calvary. Even the offenses committed against you has been wiped out on the cross of Calvary. We've been called to walk in forgiveness. We've been called to walk in the freedom of forgiveness. Jesus' blood wipes out a multitude of wrongs. In addition to this, uh, Paul here, he calls the Philippian church to stand firm in peace. To stand firm in peace. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Man, I love this passage. This is a popular passage. This is one of those passages that is somehow incredibly uplifting and encouraging. And at the same time, it, it's a passage that looks wildly impossible. 
Some of us in this room hears me read this passage and you're already getting anxious about the idea of not ever being anxious again. Right? Anxiety is not like a theory, an ethereal idea that is out there. Anxiety is present in this room right now. Anxiety is present in our heart. This is not an idea that is, this is not a problem that is limited to first century Macedonia. This is a massive issue they face as a nation. Like I was, do, I was uh, doing some study, and it says that 65% of the American population has taken some kind of an anxiety prescription in the last one year. 30% of every adult in America has some kind of an anxiety-related diagnosis. Almost everyone in this room today knows what it means to be anxious. And every time I stand up to preach, I go through, I'm reminded of what anxiety really is. So it's in my heart as well. And when Paul calls us today, when Paul exhorts the Philippian church to not be anxious and to stand firm in peace, Paul is not saying that as a man who's got a trouble-free life. Paul is facing all kinds of anxieties in this moment. He faces the anxiety of rejection. He is rejected by his family and friends and his community and clan for his faith in Jesus Christ. And then he's facing the anxiety of resistance. The Roman government, the Roman uh, government in Macedonia has oppressed the, the church there. And the Roman government has violently imprisoned Paul and his companions, the leaders of the church. And there is a looming anxiety of whether this imprisonment will turn into execution. And on top of all that, Paul is also anxious about the hardship of, about financial hardships that he is facing as his resources are depleting. So now in the face of such debilitating circumstances, Paul reminds us to rejoice in the Lord always. That doesn't even make any sense to most people. Unless, unless Paul is calling us to something greater. You see, Paul is not just calling us away from anxiety, but he's calling us towards Jesus. He's calling us towards Jesus. Because he knows it is, it is, impossible, it is impossible to go through life without facing anxiety. There's no way. Nobody gets, to, nobody gets to not face anxiety in their life. Anytime you invest your life in anything that is of value and meaningful, it can be anything from relationships to your marriage, to, to your children, to your career, to anything. The list goes on. Anytime on this side of eternity, if you invest your life in anything of value, you run the risk or you run the threat of things not going the way you want it to go. Or you run the risk of, you run the risk of losing it. And when that happens, fear and anxiety starts to creep up in our hearts. And it starts to cloud our hope. And Paul knows this. Paul knows this and, and Paul is reminding us that the Lord is at hand. And he, he reminds us of this because he knows how hard it is to see the nearness of Christ in the midst of our anxiety. When anxiety starts to press in from every direction, when we feel like our chest is tightening and when we feel like our vision is, is being clouded by fear, it is very hard to see the nearness and the presence of Jesus. Yet the best thing for our soul in that moment is to know the nearness of our Savior. Because knowing the nearness of our Savior in the face of anxiety is actually receiving the invitation or taking the invitation to experience the grace of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient for us in that moment. And Paul calls our attention to that. Get this, friends. 
when Jesus tells us to not be anxious, he knows what anxiety is. He knows what our struggles are. He, in fact, he knows us more than we know ourselves. When Jesus calls us not to be anxious, he's, he sees clearly. He's a sober one in the relationship. He knows, that, he knows that his power is sufficient to help us in the times of our trouble. But he wants us to know that. He wants us to be reminded of his nearness, that he's willing to stand with us even in the face of anxiety. For some of us in this room, and if I was honest, I'm, I'm, one, of, I'm one of you. If some of us, for many of us in this room, we believe it is very hard, it's very tempting to believe that when anxiety kicks in, when suffering kicks in, it's very tempting to believe that God has abandoned us. If that is you in this room, I just want to, I just want to, leave, I just want to give you this verse that has been super helpful for my own life. This is the verse from Romans 8. And I want to tell you that I, when I give this verse, I don't mean to wave this verse like some kind of a magic flag that you can wave in the face of anxiety and you'll get a divine shot of tranquility. That's not how I approach it. But this is a verse that the Holy Spirit of God wants us to cling on to as anxiety starts to kick in. Let's read this together. It's from Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you belong to Jesus Christ, even in the darkest nights of your soul, His nearness is yours. We have a Savior who is so committed to us. We have a Savior who is for us. Scripture reminds us that He will never leave us nor forsake us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He will never leave us. His nearness has been promised to us. Now, in this assurance of Christ's nearness, Paul is actually calling us to prayers of thanksgiving. He's exhorting the church to bring our anxieties to God in prayer. And He's asking us to do so with thanksgiving. Now, as I was reading this verse, I was thinking, man, wait a minute, this does not make much sense because what I want to do is I want to bring my circumstances to God and I want God to change my circumstances. Then I want to give thanks to God. It's not the other way around. But here's the reality, friends. Part, part, of, part of our anxieties, part of our anxieties stem from the fact that we listen to ourselves way more than we hear from God. And our anxieties start to start to dictate our reality and our anxiety starts to pull us away to believe certain lies about God about ourselves and it starts to put a wedge between everything that we really believe about who God is and this is why Paul is calling us to prayers of thanksgiving he's calling us to refocus our attention he's calling us to he's calling us to fight against everything that exalts itself up against the knowledge of God and he's calling us to reconsider who Jesus says he is, to refocus on who Jesus says he is. These are sober, these are moments, 
These are everyday moments. Thanksgiving forms, if Thanksgiving is a part of your spiritual discipline, those are everyday mundane moments where we train our hearts to rest in the sufficiency of Christ, to refocus, to refocus and look at the, to gaze at the beautiful face of Jesus Christ. And as we start to do this, as we start to do this, as we start to give ourselves to this, to this practice of thanksgiving, Scripture says here that the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts in Christ. The peace of God, the kind of peace that cannot be explained, the kind of peace that is not expected will start to guard our hearts in Christ. The peace of God will start to attend the, the worries of our soul. And one of the stories that stands out this morning, as I mentioned, that is a story of Horatio Spafford. I don't know if you've heard the name. Some of you have. He's a, he was a, a, a Christian lawyer and a businessman who lived in the late 1800s. And in 1871, he lost, he had a, one son and four daughters. In 1871, he lost his son. He lost his son to sickness. And then uh, soon after that, a few months after that, he lost most of his life savings in the great Chicago fire. And then two years later, as he was trying to rebuild his life, two years later, he decided to take a vacation with his four daughters and his wife in Europe. And so on that appointed day, on that appointed day, day they embarked on this journey. They were about to embark board a, a, a ship. And in the last minute, he was, he was delayed and he had to stay back. And so he sent his wife and his children ahead of him. And so in about a week's time, as, they, the, as the ship journeyed towards Europe, the ship collided with another vessel and 226 people died on November 22nd, 1873. And four of his daughters died in that tragedy. So he lost his son, lost all his life saving. Four of his daughters died. And he received a telegraph from his wife saying, saved alone, what must I do? And so he went to, he decided to go to Europe and receive his wife. And as he was traveling on this ship, as the ship came to the spot where one week before the, the tragedy occurred and he lost all four of his daughters. He stood at the hull of the ship, looked to the spot where his daughters drowned a week before. And, and, and God filled him with a song. We sing this song. It says, when peace like a river attended my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever, my Lord, thou hast taught me to sing, it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't know what that is. I don't know what kind of peace that is. It's promised, it's promised in God's word. There's a kind of peace. There's a kind of peace that Jesus gives us that cannot be explained, that cannot, that, 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 that just cannot defies all logic. Horatius Favre and his wife spent the rest of their lives serving as missionaries in the Middle East and worked among Islamic communities and Jews till the day that they were reunited with their loved ones in the presence of Jesus. Jesus calls us to stand firm in peace. In addition to this, Paul calls us, Paul calls the Philippian church to stand firm in contentment. Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of 
facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. At this, at this point, I just want to pause and say out loud where something that some of you, at least some of you, would be thinking in this moment. When we consider what Paul is saying, and when we look at it in the backdrop of the cultural moment that we are in, that sounds so bizarre. Paul sounds so crazy in what he's saying here. Paul is talking about three things that all of us in this room definitely want. We all want harmony. We all want peace. And we all want contentment. Yet Paul is talking about three things that seems massively elusive to most of us. And he's, and he's, and he's talking about these things as if it is accessible to all of, all of us. And the crazy part is that when he is doing that, he's actually sitting in a Roman prison cell. Think of it for a second. For Paul, contentment is so much more than a perfect set of circumstances. In fact, if you look at his life, as I mentioned earlier, his life is a, a roller coaster of high highs and low lows. We see when we read the book of Acts, we see that, that, that Paul, Paul, was, Paul, is, Paul knew what persecution is. In the book of Acts, it says that he was, he was stoned in Jerusalem. He did not take drugs in Jerusalem. He was actually pelted with stones. He was uh, stoned in Jerusalem and he was dragged out of the city. We see him being beaten and we see him, we see him multiple times being imprisoned. We see him being flogged. And he says that he, says that he was shipwrecked three times. Like I, don't, I have not even read about anybody who was shipwrecked three times. Like at the second time, you change your mode of transportation. Like ship is not, ships are not for you, you know, so, but he was shipwrecked three times. And, it's, and, and, and Paul says that one day, he, on one night, he was shipwrecked and, and, the, and, and he managed to, you know, he, he managed to escape to the, to the shore. And when he reached the shore, he was bitten by a poisonous snake. I've never had a night like that. Thank the Lord. So Paul knows what it means to face hardship for the sake of his faith in Jesus. Then we also see that Paul is a familiar with abundance. We see that before his conversion, Paul, 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 enjoyed, Paul enjoyed respect and Paul enjoyed the attention of his people. And we see this even as a church planter in Philippi. One of the first converts in this city is a, is a wealthy businesswoman called Lydia. And, and, and after her conversion, she, she invites Paul and his companions and, 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 and shows them hus- luxurious hospitality. And so Paul knows what it is to, to, to be in abundance. And then Paul knows, Paul is, uh, Paul knows uh, what it means to feast. Because we see that the, the Philippian jailer who is converted throws a banquet in honor of what God has done in his life. And he honors Paul and his companions. And Paul receives you know, in the, from this banquet. So Paul knows what it is to be in abundance. But for, but for Paul, it did not matter whether rich or poor, whether clothed or naked, Whether feasting or fasting, Paul had learned the secret of being content in every situation. And he calls the Philippian church to do the same. So what does that mean for us today? We live in a a time, we live in a time where we have more choices than any other time in history. We live in a time when progressively quality of life is improving. Yet we see that the satisfaction index of the average human being is plummeting. 
There's a, there's a recent study that was done where, where, where they were comparing the quality of life in, 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 in America. And it says that, uh, it says that in the quality of life has exponentially increased because uh, the income of the average American has risen drastically in real terms in the last 40 years. The average American home is a thousand square foot bigger than it used to be 40 years ago. The average American diet has 500 more calories than 40 years ago. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it is true. <laughs> we, have, we have cutting edge technologies that make our life so much more comfortable and so much more easy, but yet two-thirds of Americans, get this, two-thirds of Americans have reported to be discontent with life. So discontentment has to mean something that is, that is more, far, more beyond, far beyond our external circumstances. I have to be honest with you, as I, was, uh, as I was studying this text, I had a moment when the Holy Spirit peeled back the curtains of my own heart. And I literally had to fall on my knees and ask the Lord to help me because the Lord showed me how often my own heart is persuaded by discontentment. We all know, we all know most, many of us sitting in this room, or maybe most of us sitting in this room, the prophetic voice that often leads our life and the choices that we make is the voice of discontentment. So today, as we look at this passage, Paul calls us to consider the beauty of contentment. And I just want to, as we, as we close, as we wrap things up, I want to show you a few things that we learn about contentment from this passage. Number one, Contentment does not equal a life without longing or distress. Contentment does not equal a life without longing or distress. Contentment does not mean that we are free from desires or a longing or difficult circumstances. Contentment is not calling us to kind of live, move through life detached and, have a, and embrace a stoic attitude. Because if that was the case, then we would be shortchanging our own hearts from receiving the comfort and the peace that Jesus Christ brings to our struggling hearts. Now, in addition to that, contentment does not equal a carefree existence either. I was, I was, uh, I was geeking out on the word contentment, and I, I did a Google search, you know, um, on, on the word. I don't know why I did that. But uh, uh, there was a, the, it was interesting that all the images that popped up were images of perfectly beautiful people laying on hammocks in perfectly beautiful places, in beaches and on top of mountains and places like that. And some of them were reading books and some of them were drinking fruity drinks. I don't think that is the image of contentment that Paul had in his mind when he is penning this passage by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Because if those idyllic moments was what contentment is, then Jesus will have to take us out of this world. Because in this world, there's trials. In this world, there's temptations. Then what is contentment? Contentment is simply a heart posture. Contentment is a heart that believes that Jesus Christ is sufficient. It is a heart that relies on Jesus to satisfy us even in the midst of difficult circumstances that we cannot change. I think if you're honest with us, when most people, when we think about contentment, we have a long list of things. We have a long list of things standing between us and contentment. Only, only if I had X amount of dollars in my bank, if I could add so much more money to my savings, or if I had this kind of career, 
or, or if I had this, this person you know, to be my spouse, or if I had a, a bigger car or a, or a better house, the list is endless. We, we are constantly spinning our wheels and, and wearing ourselves out to change external circumstances around us in hopes that we will find con- contentment inside of our hearts. This passage tells us that that's not how it works. This passage shows us that contentment is a heart that finds security and rest in Jesus Christ. Contentment is experiencing the strength of Jesus. Ultimately, growing in contentment is a work of grace. I think if you belong to Jesus, we can take heart knowing that that Christ Jesus died for the discontented hearts, for the sinful discontented hearts that we harbor. He died for that. And He died for that And he arose again and he has now, he rules and reigns with all authority in heaven and earth to change our discontented hearts and teach our hearts to trust in him and teach our hearts to be satisfied in him. He's got the the power to make us truly content. And this is what, this is the power, this is the strength that Paul is talking about when he says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. Paul says, I can do all things Because Jesus Christ is at work in my heart. Jesus Christ is teaching me the secret of being content in all situations. Through Christ Jesus and the strength that he provides, I can be content. So as we conclude today, the the call in the book of Philippians is a simple call. It's a call for simple and pure devotion to Jesus. And this devotion to Jesus is not a call to hermitude. It It is a call to live out this devotion as we live in this world as followers of Jesus Christ. And this is not a call that is just, that is just uh, limited to the Philippian church. It's a call that is extended to every single one of us in this room. Jesus, Jesus calls us to come and follow him. And he calls us to stand firm in harmony. He calls us to stand firm in peace. He calls us to stand firm in contentment. And you know what the greatest news is? The greatest news is that he does not just merely call us and leave us and tells us good luck. That's not how Jesus works. He calls us and he empowers us. He stands with us. He helps us to stand firm in harmony, stand firm in peace, and stand firm in contentment. Jesus today holds you and I united in harmony with each other in his community. And Jesus does that through his broken body and shed blood. Jesus reminds us that between you and your brother, between you and your sister, Jesus stands with all his mercy, all his forgiveness, all his kindness. And we learn to relate to each other through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We don't get to relate to our brothers and sisters outside of the grace that we have already received in Christ. Jesus stands in the midst, holding us together in harmony. And in addition to that, Jesus knows what it is to face anxiety. The Bible tells us that there was a moment in the life of Jesus when in the garden of Gethsemane, he, he faced such anxiety, he battled such anxiety that he started, the, the, the sweat glands burst open and he started profusely bleeding through his sweat pores. But yet he did not sin in that. And because of this, Jesus knows what it is to be anxious. Jesus is present with us in the darkest nights of our soul. We have a high priest today, Jesus, who sits on the right hand side of the Father, who knows what it is to be. Think about, the, think about the most difficult moment in your life. Think about when anxiety is knocking at the door of your heart. Jesus knows what that is. 
that he can be a perfect brother, he can be a friend, he can be a helper who will stand with us in that moment and, and hold our anxious hearts in our hands. One of the best things to have is someone to sit with you in the darkest moment of our lives. And King Jesus is committed to do that. If you belong to him, he's committed to sit with you. He's committed to hold your heart and walk with you in the darkest moments of your life. And finally, Jesus was perfectly content in the will of the Father to bear the punishment of our discontentment. He was perfectly content. He became the punishment for our discontentment. And through him today, we experience strength. We experience power. And we experience the grace to learn from him to be content in life. So as we, as we wrap this up today, maybe you're here and you are, you've been following Jesus for a while. And maybe as you hear this, the Lord is bringing things to your mind. The Holy Spirit is highlighting things in your heart. Maybe for you, God is calling you to reconcile with someone. Maybe in this room. Maybe in your home. Maybe in your community. I want to encourage you. I want to remind you that that's not, that's a, Jesus gives himself to that call. He will walk with you as you sit down and as you have that conversation, as you take that step, first step of reconciliation, know that Christ is present in that moment. His power is present in that moment. Maybe for some of you, you're struggling to believe that Christ is present with you in your anxiety. Lift that up before Jesus as we pray together. Invite Jesus into your anxiety. He's not afraid of our anxieties. He doesn't shy away from our anxiety. He's not waiting for us to get better and meet him on the other side. He meets us in our anxiety. He meets us in the darkest places of our heart. And for all of us in this room, our prayer, my prayer for my own heart and our prayer together collectively is that we would learn, we'd be a people who would learn to grow in contentment.